Hi, and welcome to the 21st Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton, and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is Soapbox Science. Soapbox Science is a really special initiative that is very close to my heart as I've worked with its founders pretty much since Womanthology began all those years ago. They give women in science a platform to share their professional passions with the public. I have the great privilege of speaking with the co-founders of Soapbox Science, Dr. Natalie Petarelli and Professor Serian Sumner. They talk about taking science to the streets 10 years ago, but then because of COVID, they've taken their talks online. We'll be hearing about how the initiative has spread by word of mouth and taken the world by storm. I'll also be talking you through the written stories in the new issue. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website. That's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our new LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We have got Professor Serian Sumner, who is Professor of Behavioural Ecology at UCL. And we also have Dr. Natalie Petarelli, who is Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Zoology at the Zoological Society of London. Thank you. Great to be here. So uh, we are going to get started with the questions now, if that's okay. This is for the Womanthology Soapbox Science special, which we've done for a good few years. We've spoken to you several times before in our written magazine, but for those who miss these, please could you give us a brief overview uh, of your educational background and your career to date? I will start with you, Natalie. I'm Natalie Petrelli. I work at the Zoological Society of London, who is famous, among other things, for the zoos. I'm a conservation biologist interested in bringing back nature and working on biodiversity, uh, monitoring and way of bringing back biodiversity. My educational background, I did a PhD in France on roe and then I moved around. And in 2006, I started at ZSL and then uh, never left. <laughs> and and uh, what about you, Sarian? Uh, so I'm from a zoological background, although I don't work at the zoo at the moment. I did a zoology degree and then did a PhD on wasps. And I guess it's safe to say I haven't looked back. I'm still studying wasps 20 years later. <laughs> but I was also at the uh, Institute of Zoology with Natalie many years ago. And that's where we forged our soapbox science plans as well. But I am now currently at UCL. So for those people who have not read our previous Soapbox Science written issues, could you remind us what Soapbox Science is all about and how it all got started? Because it's a brilliant story. That uh, aims to promote the visibility of women in science by organising a series of local events by local people that bring a scientist from local university nearby where you live, nearby where you work, on soapboxes in the most random location to talk about the science that they do. And so the peculiarity of this is that these are free. These are no slides, no booking, no seating plans, nothing, just random interaction with a passing by. I think you summarized it really well. 
I guess the ethos is to um, break down those barriers and remove the, the middle person between the scientists and the public. And so, as Natalie says, we put our soapbox scientists on the streets where there's lots of people passing by and we hope to catch those people who wouldn't necessarily intend to go to a science fair or to go and, and meet a scientist, that it's sort of happenstance that they bump into scientists on the street. And that's often what we observe. We see people going, hang on a minute, who's that person standing on a box in a white coat? Oh, and they come over and they chat and they, it's more of a dialogue. It's not a presentation, it's a dialogue between the scientists and the, and the public. I know from the photos, uh, the, the props that people bring along as well. So we've got people with the models of the solar system and creatures. What are you, the things that people have demonstrated in the street? My favourite remains forever, the life-size cow that not only they brought in London, but they went on a tour with it all over <laughs> London and put a Twitter picture of the cow looking at Westminster, the cow looking at the castle. So that has to be my favourite. I guess my favourite is not a prop at all. It was the speaker, Emily Cross, and she studies the brain and how and dance. She got the public on the South Bank of London doing the Macarena. So the audience was her prop. It was awesome. So it's really informal, but it's really accessible for everybody as well. So I think that's the key to the success. Yes, totally. It's the informality of it. And our speakers, although they put an enormous amount of effort preparing for their soapbox session, actually what they find is they only talk for about five minutes and then it becomes a conversation and the public will put up their hand and ask a question, which will take the speaker off into a completely different territory that they, they hadn't prepared to talk about, but they were perfectly capable of talking about it. And that's what's really nice. It becomes really natural, the conversation between the scientists and the public. And then we can't get them off those subboxes. <laughs> and we have to employ all kind of subterfuge to just move them around so that the next speaker can talk. Yeah, sometimes we're, we're not only pulling them off the box, we're also derobing them because they wear these white coats, which makes them stand out. It's like what people ex um, associate with the scientists. And so not only are we trying to get the person off the box so the next speaker can get on, we're also trying to get their coat off them <laughs> so that we can put it on the next speaker. <laughs> We're literally undressing them. <laughs> I suppose for the people that take part, they get really into it, don't they? Because they care so much about their science, about their subject. They want to prepare, they want to do their best. It becomes a, a, a brilliant experience for them. How many people in, in, in their everyday life would have to stand on a box and talk to people otherwise? Well, I think the main thing is that science is in every day's life. It's around you all the time, whether you have a medical issue, whether you have a technical issue, whether you are uh, looking at uh, the news and do not understand you know, whether you should take that vaccine or whether you should take that drugs. It's everywhere. And so th there's two things happening here. One of the magics that the speakers go back to the root of why they do science, which is to help people to be useful and to, to try to advance something for, for others. And then for people, it brings back the fact that science is actually part of their life. It's not something remote in an ivory tower. It's something that means something that can use all the time, that they can do if they want to. And that's the rise of citizen science, but more broadly, it creates that connection. 
So I just I wanted to add to that because it's not only about the people listening to the scientists and meeting the scientists. It's obviously enormous benefits for them, but it's also benefits for the speaker themselves. And one of the things that we've done recently, because we've now had 10 years worth of speakers, I can't remember how many speakers it is, but it's over 1500. We've been able to go back and uh, ask those speakers how they think that taking part in Soapbox has influenced their career. It's hard to assess that sort of thing, but we were really excited to learn that our speakers thought that by taking part in Soapbox, they'd improve their own confidence in networking, in public speaking, and a general confidence in their work. So by giving them this platform, it's not only serving the purpose of communicating with the public and bringing the scientists to the people, it's also in its own way boosting the career prospects of those speakers. And what a lovely legacy to have all of those people who've taken part and got excited about it, put their talk together. There's a also passing the baton on to the next generation as well. I've It's nice that you mentioned legacy, because I think that's one thing that's taken Natalie and me completely by surprise in that we set this up as a once a year event in London. And then it's purely through the speakers that it's exploded across the globe. The reason that new events got set up in the first place was that speakers who'd taken part said to us, I'd really like to set this up in my own city, my own university town. Um, And we help them do that. It's like a budding of soapbox across the world. And it's the speakers who've driven that. They've seen what a benefit it is to them and the public. And they want to do it and they're a home patch. Natalie, you had some thoughts about the international side of things as well. Um, it's difficult not to because uh, we are now in 15 countries. Every year we have new countries coming up to us, new events. I mean, just this year we're going to new location in Nigeria, in Germany, in Australia, in Canada. So we have had to think about how to scale up all of this from one event in London. So developing the support. What was the most interesting thing is that ultimately made us create Subbox. The thing that really talked to us about, about the lack of role model, the lack of visibility, the lack of recognition of the contribution of women to science resonated all over. It's not just a UK problem. It's in Argentina, it's in Nigeria, it's in Australia, it's everywhere. So it's something that bonded us all together. And what's beautiful with this is that it creates a community of uh, local organizers, of speakers, of, of people that connect around one thing that they all have in common, which is both to raise the visibility of those contributions, but also to approach science communication differently by really promoting that direct dialogue to demystify what science is and how science can be talked about. I think one of the other appeals about Soapbox Science is that it costs practically nothing. You don't have to make a fancy box if you don't want to. You can just find a crate, a box, stand on it. And that makes it so much more accessible as a form of science communication for people in the developing world. They don't need to have an infrastructure, a science fair to go to. They don't need fancy props. They can just get on a box and talk about the science that they love. I would say the organisation behind the scenes is fantastic, though, isn't it, to make that happen. So shout out to Isla, who is your third person. She's the first person. (laughs) She is the one that makes everything happen. She's the one that manages this 
giant beast that we created. Isla runs the show and she's created all these amazing videos or online. So, so Soapbox had all the nuts and bolts online before it became fashionable to put it online as it is now in the pandemic. <laughs> and that's totally down to the brilliance of Isla. Oh, well, shout out to Isla. So she knows she's very much appreciated. So in terms of the COVID impact, so we had videos going on before. Has it changed anything that you're doing for this year? What's the story there? So we're not doing less. What has changed is uh, how we interact with people. Because uh, this year is the same as last year. Most uh, events will still be online. There's pros and cons to this. But the cons is that we used to trap people. They didn't expect us and uh, we were there face to face. They couldn't really escape. At least we were tr- trying to bring the preaching not to the choir. This year, it's much more difficult to do that. So we, we tend to have a different type of audience. But the positive of this is that everything is done through video. So we have a YouTube channel that has been growing year on year on. And I've been able to put all those talks, all those presentations for free online, which means that they can be seen at any point by anyone. And so we have diversified the, the audience in terms of geographic uh, representation and also made it easier to access for parents or s- school kids because if they couldn't make it between, you know, two and five in London, then you, you couldn't see it. Now you can catch up uh, with those events. So it has broadened that, but it has reduced our ability of those face-to-face that most of our speakers really enjoy. So maybe we need to create a, a uh, sit with popcorn moment opportunity so we can we can watch together maybe. Last year we had to put everything online at quite short notice and our speakers did a brilliant job at, at, at that. But last year we weren't used to this online life of receiving everything online, talks and, and meetings. Now this year it's not going to be quite so unusual to have an online event. So I, I would imagine that Everybody, it's not only the speakers themselves have had more time to think about, oh, this is an online talk rather than an in-person talk, but it's also the audiences have had time to adjust and say, oh, I'm used to going to log on to that talk or have a look at a YouTube video or type in the chat on a Zoom call. I imagine that even our, will there be a life after pandemic or whatever that is, I still think a hybrid is a really good way forward because as, and as Natalie said not everybody can get to a particular town or city to meet those speakers. Accessibility wise that seems to be the thing now this hybrid model and I think moving forward that's the way things will stay won't it because we never quite know what's going to happen so I think there's always going to be the online option as well as the, the face-to-face which is kind of the best of both worlds. We've heard a lot about the disproportionate impact of COVID on women. How would you say it's impacted on women in science in particular? I think we're going to have very different answers from me and Syrian because of the, the type of science that we do. And if you were to talk to even more, the more diverse set of women in science, it, it very much depends on your situation at home, the type of work that you do. But some women had to completely reorganize how they work. And for anyone that was working in the lab, suddenly it was impossible to do anything. For anyone that had kids, and they had to try to do science and at the same time educate their kids and make sure that they were uh, full the online courses when they were available. (laughs) The effect in general has been quite diverse. What we know, however, is that on average, uh, women in science have had a higher cost to bear than uh, men in science because they had to invest more in taking care of everything that was going on at home, for example. There's been some quite 
um, impressive surveys and studies published in the last six months or so that have shown how women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, but also those who are care with caring responsibilities. For example, I have a five-year-old and when the schools were closed, which has been a large portion of the last year, we've had to wrangle him as well as trying to do our day jobs and to the extent that my husband and I were basically down to 50% working time each because the other 50% of the time we'd have to share looking after our, our five-year-old and more recently with, with trying to do homeschooling I have total respect for teachers even more than, than I did before like oh my goodness they are saints angels gods everything and they are incredible I, I would be at the most awful primary school teacher I know that now <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the teachers. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing that the studies have shown is that the, the things that we do as scientists, especially in universities, are we have research, teaching and admin. And the area that has taken the biggest hit in the pandemic has been research time and that makes sense because the teaching still has to go on we've completely altered the way we teach certainly at UCL we've taught entirely online over the last year we've had to put an enormous amount of effort into making our lectures accessible online and all of our practicals even online and of course there's always the administration to do you can't get rid of that so it's always been the research that's taken the back seat and as Natalie said the research that requires people to go into the lab or even into the field so most of my work my group's work it involves lab work and field work and all of that's just had to come to a stop and we've had to basically invent new projects that are purely computational. So in terms of how we encourage more girls into scientific careers, do you think that maybe COVID-19 could be a catalyst for this? Because we've, let's face it, there's been a lot of science all around everywhere for us all to see. Do you think that will help us get more girls involved? It's difficult to say. I think going into a profession, there's a lot of different things that appeal. And being useful or helping on the health front, if you see a lot of uh, science. Also, if you're faced with a lot of information that you don't understand, it might motivate you to try to explore this more. But I, I strongly believe that career paths are very much influenced by your parents, your neighbors, your community, and your access to role models. And that will not change just with COVID. I do still think that um, there's a lot of uh, social and cultural aspects that ultimately shape the decision of the next generation as to where they want to go. And so those haven't been addressed through COVID-19. If anything, some of them have been quite reinforced. I absolutely agree. I think we always focus on how can we get more girls into science? Well, actually, there isn't necessarily a problem getting girls interested in science, and particularly in biology, the areas that Natalie and I work in, where women are actually overrepresented at the undergraduate level and even the PhD level. And it's only after then that they start to disappear. I am really worried about the disproportionate effects of the pandemic on those early career female scientists. So those are the people who don't have permanent contracts. They might have two or three year postdoc or fellowships. And knowing what it's been like as a mum, juggling with a young child and trying to get my research done and I have a permanent job so it doesn't really matter for me the effect on these early career females especially those with caring responsibilities is really concerning because often these contracts are only two or three years and in many cases they can't be extended because the funding's run out and so they basically lost 
months of their postdocs or their fellowships where they've not been able to do the work that they were supposed to do. And so that's going to have a knock on effect to their CVs and it's going to jeopardise their chances for their next next jobs. We've spoken before about the links to funding and Athena Swan and things like that. So obviously that link's been broken now. The Athena Swan diversity charter that universities sign up to, the funding used to be linked to that, but it's now not. Is that right? Uh, It was for a long time argued that it should or could, and there was some strong push for it. Recently, that push has diminished, and that's because um, there has been a recognition that it's not just a women diversity problem in science, there's a a diversity in general problem, (laughs) so you can't just look at one aspect of diversity and completely ignore the other aspect of diversity. The other things that has changed also is that the Athena Swan framework required the money to be able to be a participant, to be assessed. It's required a lot of infrastructure and resources to produce the assessment and follow through. And that made it relatively less accessible to uh, some institution. And so if you think, well, uh, you could have a charter for each dimension of diversity, but then you apply the same framework, you would spend more time feeling formed than actually doing something to increase diversity in your institution. So I think there has been a rethinking about a more holistic approach that focuses on not only the forms and the numbers, but also trying to look at the dynamic within each institution to actually change the, the game on diversity. I, th- I think Athena Swan has done a great service to us all in the academic sector, but I think it is also realising that it needs to broaden its remit. And actually, it makes it much easier to action change which benefits women if it has a broader remit and many of the things that you would want to put in place under an Athena Swan badge actually benefits people who don't fit under that category anyway that makes it a lot more accessible and you get a lot more people on board if it's about inclusion in general and not just about gender. So we've rattled through the questions now we're on the final question now what is coming up next for you what are you excited about also at this point a good time to um, explain to people how they can engage with soapbox as well so if you wanted a call to action how would you want them to engage with soapbox so i think what's exciting for us is that uh, we have been there for 10 years 10 years for us it's amazing achievement yeah as as Syrian was saying it's 1600 speakers I think it's 141 events or something like this so there's a number of things that we want to do this year to mark this occasion one of them is to probably release a report as to what we have done uh, for those 10 years to bring all those data together and really celebrate what we've been able to achieve thanks to all the people that contributed to this. Of course, there's something like 45 events planned uh, for this year. So the call to action is to join at least one. (laughs) And given that it's online, you can see some of them on our YouTube channel and watch them all, literally. The third one is probably, if you can, uh, think about how this could come into your city. Because if you don't have one, we are always open for more city to join uh, the club. Sounds, Sounds like a plan to me. And what about you, Serian? It's hard to know. I think just more of the same. I mean, Soapbox is a model that works really well. And it's a beautiful beast that's taken on its own life and spread organically. And I don't think it needs messing with. I think it works really well with Isla at the helm. It, It just rolls along and it's doing beautiful things for lots of people around the world. And we couldn't wish for more. 
what a fantastic place to leave it and can we uh, keep in touch with you as things progress and we'll keep following what you're doing if that's okay thank you thank you you both so much pleasure speaking with you natalie and serian our associate editor Inesh santos is off on her holidays this week so i'm sharing what is in the written issue this fortnight we feature Dr. Stella Manoli. She's a soapbox science Bristol speaker and teaching associate at the University of Strathclyde's Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department. Stella talks about using soapbox science to correct the misconception that science is only happening behind closed lab doors. She wants us to know that we are surrounded by science, so it's time to have some fun with it. Leia Delgado Calico is a speaker at Soapbox Science London and a physics PhD student at King's College London, studying properties of metallic nanoparticles from very small sizes up to 1,000 atoms. She talks about doing big research on small subjects. Paula Nicola Kienka is a Soapbox Science Milton Keynes speaker and an energy and power PhD research student at Cranfield University. In her Soapbox Science talk, Paula will share how artificial intelligence, and more specifically machine learning, can be applied in the energy industry. There's huge potential to harness machine learning to reduce CO2 emissions, for example. Dr. Orode Annie Jirengo is organiser of Soapbox Science in Lagos, Nigeria, and works in drug discovery, as well as being a tutor for infection control and public health courses at the University of Essex. She shares how Soapbox Science is showing Nigerian girls that the speakers are regular people, just like them, as well as helping to build support networks for the scientist participants themselves. Garda Aldisari is a Soapbox Science Toronto speaker, as well as being a board-certified medical physicist, currently pursuing a PhD in medical physics at Carleton University. Garda's talk focuses on new techniques for treating breast cancer patients with radiation therapy in a safe and effective way. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also subscribe. Your feedback is really important. So please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. That's all for now. But join us in the next episode, which celebrates International Women in Engineering Day 2021.